Hello and welcome to our monthly podcast series, In Conversation With. Hello and welcome to the Global Cosmetics News podcast. Today we'll be talking about the trends set to shape the year ahead. And first, it's my pleasure to introduce our panellists. We have Nick Vores, Partner and Creative Director at Three of the Birds, Amajit Sahota, Founder and President at Ecovia Intelligence, Dr. Richard Blackburn, co-founder at Caracol Limited, and Ellen McCaskill, Global Customer Director at The Body Shop. Welcome, everybody. So the first thing that we wanted to talk about was uh, trends in retail for 2019. In 2018, it's been a sort of funny year for retail. On the one hand, we've had brands like Sephora, huge success, launching their own massive event um, to rival BeautyCon. We've had Ulta, we've had pop-ups galore. On the other, we've had quite a few department stores failing. What is going on? Can bricks and mortar survive the onslaught of online? What do you think, Nick? Do you want to start? I think they absolutely can survive, but I think they have to think differently. I think, you know, it's been really interesting and absolutely you, 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 know, you mentioned some absolute successes this year. And I think there's brands within beauty that are tapping into technology, the experience, but also getting to the absolute truth of the brand. And I think that's where it's shifting. What is the absolute truth and how are you going to create that experience? I think with department stores, they have just lost what they're really about. And I think the you know, experiences should be authentic. They should be the kind of this experiences that you absolutely enjoy. And I think that with the retail experiences, it's just about selling. And I think it's a lot more these days. And I think clients, um, consumers rather, actually want that kind of that experience. And I think that you can just get the retail experience online. So we've got to offer our consumers something different. And I think it's less about selling. It's got to be more than a transaction. Absolutely. Ellen, what do you think? What's the body shop doing to lure people into store? Well, we have over 3,000 stores worldwide. So we're in over 60 countries. We have uh, nearly 270 stores in the UK. So we really believe in our shops. We're the body shops, they're shops. You're right, Nick, that the experience that people want in a store to be able to play, to be able to test is really important and more important when they can just buy the product online. They want that in store. But more than that, I think it's the human connection that you get Mm. in shops in an era where we are walking around with bits of plastic in our hand, where we're communicating via text messages to go in and to have eye contact with somebody and to have somebody talk to you and to engage with them is so incredibly powerful. And I think you're right, shops that are focused on just selling and not listening and engaging with the people in front of them, I think that's as important as the experience that they're going to give is the people that they are hiring and how they are enabling those people to really be at their best. And I think we need to remember that retail as well is a huge employer of people around the world. It's, I think the people who work in our shops and are there till goodness knows what time on Christmas Eve and Boxing Day and all the different events um, do an amazing job. So I think we need to think as much about the people who are working in those shops as the experience that we are giving because they are really important and often very mm. brilliant. So for you, it's moving towards more a shop would have a diagnostic role almost that you would go there for advice rather than if you want to buy something, you know, three clicks and you're in and it arrives at your door. But yeah. if, if you perhaps want some advice, you would go. Yeah. How, how do you reconcile that with the sort of AI movement online that's sort of seeking to take over that role? 
what are shops going to be able to do going forward? I think it's that human contact that Ellen was just mentioning. I think that you cannot replicate that. Mm. That is an absolute truth and that, you know, there's nothing better than human connections and advice and experiences. I think the retail spaces, the bricks and mortar, have to really, truly think differently. Mm. They should be almost workshop spaces. They should be spaces that are not just selling. They should be holding talks, events. The knowledge that those brands have got there's so much richness there mm. and it just feels that it's just turning it into that commodity space where where's the till mm. and where do I queue and where's the shopping basket mm. it's got to be more in a, in a more experiential zone and I think that's the really exciting thing I think the likes of Glossier the likes of the Mac workshops that are popping up in New York they are really shareable experiences that you go and it's less about the spending power you can do that online it's the experience first and foremost I mean, that's what Alta's doing, isn't it? Yeah. They're, they're, they're clearing some of their floor space Absolutely. for services and, and events. And, and that, that, Absolutely. That and it's a new successful. thinking. It's, it, that retail space is like, where am I going to put all the units? I've got to have X amount, X height, floor space. Mm. But actually, take it out. You can buy that online. I want the experience. And that's, mm. I, if, if brands don't start thinking differently, they will. the high street is, mm. is uh, doomed. What do you think, Hamilton? I think the whole retail landscape is changing. And when you've got Amazon buying Whole Foods market for $12.7 billion, and that's just telling you that the whole retail market is changing. And if you look at the natural organic products market, more than half of all organic product sales in, say, USA and other countries are for millennials. Millennials are the most avid buyers of products through the mobile phones, through internet, etc. And it's telling you that this trend is here and it's here to stay. Now, when they acquired Whole Foods Market, what they've done is they're using Whole Foods Market stores as pickup depots for their Amazon products. So you can buy from Amazon. Instead of having it delivered to your home, you can go to Whole Foods Market and pick it up from there. And what's happened in the USA is all the major retailers are now trying to tie up with online home delivery services so that they can emulate that. So the retail landscape is changing. I believe there is room for, you know, the traditional retailers, but it's a lot more competitive. And if you look at what's happening here in the UK, a lot of the high street retailers are struggling. Business rates are very high in terms of uh, labor costs are very high, whereas Amazon, all they do is set up a warehouse in the middle of nowhere. Business rates are very low, labor costs are very low, and they manage to, you know, cut competition so much from the high street retailers. So what we see is online retail is here to stay. It's going to get bigger and expect to see more ventures like Amazon, etc., moving into the market, buying high street retailers and using them as pickup points. Yeah. I was about to say, Richard, from a brand's perspective, you sell only online, am I correct? Yeah, at the moment, we, we launched on Amazon. When we formed our brand, Dr. Craft, we we wanted to obviously start picking up sales. And to walk into a buyer in one of the big high street retailers is very, very difficult, whereas Amazon offers a great opportunity to start. But the other great thing about Amazon is the fact that you immediately get reviews, and for us as scientists who are constantly evolving products, that's also a really, really good thing about Amazon is that you can see what the consumer's thinking directly. So beyond your own focus groups, which potentially could be biased, you get in a true sense, hopefully, of what the consumer actually thinks. Our ambition is, is 
to take Dr. Craft into other retail spaces and we'd like to be on the high street, but we wouldn't be able to get that that visibility and the knowledge about our brand and, and demonstration of sales had it not been for the opportunity that Amazon affords us. I think it's... Um... It's not either or. And you can see that by Amazon buying Whole Foods, by them launching their store. And it was interesting visiting their store in New York recently, their four-star store, which is geared up with lots of cameras and things, basically watching what people are doing in stores. It's a very technological approach. It's not either or. Of course, online is here to stay. We have a very powerful online business, which is growing very rapidly. We have an amazing peer-to-peer -peer selling business, The Body Shop at Home, where customers are selling to their friends directly. You know, the, the pace of change has never been faster and, and will never be slower. So I think expect to see lots more disruptive models beyond just e-commerce versus shops. But will those come at the expense of shops? I don't believe so. I think shops need to redefine their purpose, both for customers and for the people who work in them, because they are really important to the economy. They are the people shopping on Amazon. Um, so it's really important to economies globally. And they're really important, talented people. So how do we develop both the people working in the shops and the experience for our customers? So let's move on to the technology side <clears throat> of things because we've talked about how online's here today and retail's here today. The fact of the matter is that at the moment, most people shop in physical stores. That's a statistical fact. But brands are doing their best to tempt them to go online with AR. I mean, obviously it suits brands because it's direct consumer rather than via retailers. So they're getting their consumer data directly. What do we think about AI? What do we think about Instagram shopping? Are they gimmicks or are they actually here to stay? Are we going to see more of it? Are they helping people make decisions or are they replacing bricks and mortar? What's, what's the deal? I think they are here to stay. And I think that there's lots of brands investing heavily into it. And so they should. And I think things will evolve. And technology is, an, is another form of evolution for consumerism. I think that there's things that are working. There's things that are definitely not. I think it does tie into the, the, the experience as well. I think the face mapping technology for AI and uh, the face mirroring that Sephora have um, adopted, I think is, is proving a success. Chatbots have, have played their role to some degree, and I think they've got a long way to go because I think they are kind of quite surface. And for beauty industry, can you really go as deep as you want it to go. And that kind of does compare yourself to the experience that you can get in store. I don't think it is kind of replacing like for like, but I think it's enhancing. And I think technology can enhance that experience no end. I think we've seen some brands that are really adapting technology and at the forefront. I think Function of Beauty, the, the kind of bespoke hair care range, has been completely built from um, technology and personalization. I think that's definitely something that brands are going to tap into. I think it's really exciting. And I think that it'd be really interesting to see where it can go. And I, I'm really pleased that brands are investing in it so heavily because that is the future. And I think it's, it's about the democratization of information and power. Because if you go back about 15 years, you know, the beauty market was controlled by some big brands, Lauder, Clinique, Lancôme, L'Oréal, and they told customers what they needed. And here's the big product, here's what you need. And the pace of new became faster and, you know, so many products proliferating, getting a bit overwhelming. And the power has really shifted to customers being able to research, 
the arrival of things like Instagram has helped people who didn't feel represented in mm -hmm. beauty before find representation, find information. And therefore, the use of AI to personalise, to navigate that complexity, what is the right thing for me, I think is a reaction to that complexity. And, you know, now those big powerhouses brands who said, here is a big product that you want, they don't have the credibility anymore because customers can find their own information. So it's a really interesting power shift. And I think brands were always there to edit choice for customers. And now we're seeing things like AI and independent tools editing choice. So I think there is, there's definitely something in, in how AI will help customers navigate. But I think there is also how brands reinvent themselves. I think you're right, Nick, in terms of what is their purpose? What are they here to do beyond just launching a product? And, and the body shop has always been a badge. I certainly remember when I was little, a brand that that I used to wear as a badge. You know, I wanted the bag. I wanted mm. the badge. I wanted using the body shop said and still says something about you as a person. So I think brands that can rediscover that purpose and help to say something to their consumers about their consumers also help to navigate and edit choice. So I think there's the AI, but there's a pressure on brands to remember what they are there for beyond just launching products. I think from a small brand's perspective as well, it, it starts to allow small brands a little bit more fairness. It's, not, it's still not fair <laughs> competing with those huge organisations, but at least it gives you opportunities to be innovative and try through these new methods, these AI methods, to actually have a visibility and interact with your customers and do potentially something different. Because, you know, as you said, 25 years ago, how on earth could a small brand compete without any marketing budget to compete with those large companies? But now everything's changed because potentially, you know, with a little bit of innovation, you can do your marketing for free. Well, it's no accident that the indies have grown exponentially since yeah. mm. the internet took off, is it? I think they're supposed to be 40% of the market now versus the big brands. It's just enormous. I agree with you guys. You know, the trend is going from, you know, in terms of mass brands to segmentation and now it's personalization or customization and artificial intelligence is part of that. But what we've seen is artificial intelligence is quite tech heavy. It requires quite a lot of investment. So it's only the L'Oreal's, the Estee Lauder's, they can afford that investment. So what they're using is they're using artificial intelligence for consumers so they can personalize their products, their brands for them. I don't think there's going to be that much opportunities for the small indie brands with artificial intelligence, not in the next few years, maybe in 10 years time, because this technology is really being adopted by the big brands and they're using it for their own benefits so yes it will happen probably in five ten years time but if you look at the investment l'oreal's made they acquired an artificial intelligence app in usa there's estee lauder there's sephora etc they're the ones who was investing in it so they're the ones who is going to be leading this and they're the ones who's going to be influencing the market more than say the indie brands let's go back to what Ellen was saying about a message because if there's one thing that has definitely defined the last year is, is message. We started off with diversity and then we swiftly moved on to single-use plastic and towards the tail end of the year, it's become water use, reusables. So let's talk a little bit about water use and development on this front. What do we think about what the key environmental message is going to be for 2019? If I, if I could start with that, I think the industry is changing. I, I think in the last one year we've seen 
so much consumer backlash against plastic, against single-use plastic, it's almost becoming like a full circle. If you look in, say, 30, 40 years ago, we had things like reusable milk bottles. We used to get milk delivered to our home, we used to drink milk, we used to leave the bottles outside, and then we used to get fresh bottles again. There's going to be a very interesting development next year, TerraCycle. They're working with two beauty brands, and they're going to launch refillable bottles. So you pay for the bottle, and what happens is, once the product is used, you go to the store, and they're going to refill it. And this is going to cause a huge paradigm shift, because consumers are, do not want single-use plastic. They don't want to have a high impact you know, of their consumption on landfill, on, on the ocean, etc., so when these two or three brands launch that, expect to see a lot more that the <coughs> shift is going to happen towards refillable packaging. And it's not just going to be the beauty industry, it's going to be the food industry and other products. So expect to see that change next year or beginning of that change. It would be interesting in that scenario to see if it is actually better because is that a special trip that you make for your bottle to be refilled? Because the, the fuel consumption in going to have that refill could be massively in excess from a carbon footprint perspective compared to the cost of a, another bottle. From my perspective, I think in terms of packaging, we have to look at what are the recycling opportunities. And actually, if we look in this country, if it's polyester or if it's high-density polyethylene, that's got a very high chance of being recycled if it's put into the right place. And that's probably a better option than a bioplastic which biodegrades, which is non-degradable and ultimately gets incinerated or goes to landfill. So it's a very, very complex question. Potentially in terms of source materials, there are some polyesters now that are coming from renewable materials and they've got exciting possibilities. But at the end of the day, it's still a polyester. It looks and feels and is essentially the same as petrochemical-derived polyester. So we've still got to recycle it. We've still got to do something with it. So fundamentally, it's about making sure that our single-use plastics find their way to the right place to be recycled because it doesn't happen mm. magically. It's an overwhelmingly complex subject, and I think there is a danger with the current backlash against plastics, which is entirely understandable when you see those vivid images from Blue Planet, there's a danger that the backlash goes a bit too far because what I would say is that plastics are kind of a known unknown. We know what happens. We know how they degrade. We we know what happens to them. And you're right, if it's... Um, it's called PET, that's what most shower gel bottles or shampoo bottles are made of, is largely very easily recycled in most countries. I know that Swindon Council in the UK has just decided to ban recycling, but it's largely recycled and we know how to do it. And something like 8 billion tonnes of plastic has been created and using recycled plastic to create a recyclable bottle and having that closed loop system is really interesting. So there is a bit of a danger that brands jump on bandwagons and say, oh, look, we're not using plastic, but they could be using a biodegradable plastic. You're right that we don't know how it biodegrades. We don't know what's going to happen to it. So it requires quite a lot of thought. And I think, you know, China refusing to take products for recycling, there is an onus on countries to develop a recycling industry. It's really important. And, you know, I think there are certain brands and companies who are doing good work on how to help 
countries do that. And business, I think, has a really key role to play. But consumers need more information. So there is a lot of we get questions in our stores. Why don't you do those refillable pouches for your shampoos? Actually, those can't be recycled. They're laminated plastics. They are very bad. It is much better to buy the recycled bottle and then pop it in your bin. And that's much better than us collecting it because there tend to be very good recycling facilities in the UK. So I think we need to empower people with much more accurate information and it's great that people are concerned about using plastics because that is, makes it much more likely that they will go and find out the right information. It's about educating and, and raising awareness because it's not at all a simple question. You're absolutely right. And what about water use? Mm, do you, do just, you think uh, this is going to be the big mm. story for 2019? I was just going to pull it back to water <laughs> and waterless beauty because I think that what I absolutely love, I love all these discussions and I, I really like the, the fact that consumers truly are waking up and um, making that beauty choice, what's available to them. And waterless is just one of those topics that's in consumers' mindset. Of course, plastics is an absolute issue and that's been gaining momentum over many years. And finally, we're having those really good discussions about change and TerraCycle are doing some fantastic things about innovation and how to make it really user-friendly and you know what you're doing. It's a little bit like greenwashing in a way because there's, it's so confusing mm. on recycling. Mm. Every borough does it differently. Mm. Every country does it differently. Mm. And it's, it's a really hard thing to understand. But where I think that the change can happen is from the brands. I mm. think that taking responsibility, I think for waterless is really interesting. We're not thinking about water as a precious commodity enough in beauty. I think shower gels, for example, just transporting effectively fragrant water instead of just going for a bar of soap is kind of, that does make the huge amount of difference. And I think brands should be thinking about concentrated formulas. I think there's some brands that are doing really successful dry shampoos or dry face masks. It doesn't have to be mixed. You can mix with water at home. You don't have to travel around and use the packaging waste, uh, use the transportation, the carbon footprint is all increased. So I think that brands can be more accountable for what they're actually pushing to consumers. And I think they also should play the role of educating consumers, um, spending less time in the shower, thinking about recycling from your bathroom, I'm guilty, but I think for some bizarre reason, mm. the bathroom space is something that I don't actually think about and I just put it in the bin and I don't recycle mm. properly. And I think that brands should be having that discussion. I think that moving into 2019 and beyond is going to be, thankfully, a year of change and a year of transparency. And if brands aren't there yet... We as consumers would like to know when they are and what are they doing about it. One of the most concerning things for me on water is not incoming water, but exiting water. Mm -hmm. Because I don't think people really ever think about what happens to their cosmetics, personal care products. It's one of the few things that we actually use where essentially 100% of it goes straight down the drain. Mm. Either immediately when it's applied or after it's subsequently washed off our bodies. What happens to that? Mm -hmm. If you're working in, for example, one of the other areas I work in, textile industry, highly regulated, what goes out into the into the watercourses, the effluent's got to be treated, managed, you dye your hair in a salon, you 
apply shower gel at home. It just goes down the drain. There's no regulation of that. There's there's no end of pipe treatment on your house for what's going out there. So I think that what brands need to be thinking about is what's going into their bottles, but more so what's going down the drain. All this chemistry that may be perfectly fine and safe for human use, it doesn't necessarily mean that that's perfectly fine and safe when it gets into the environment. So, you know, using copious amounts of shower gel to get yourself nice and clean could have a, a huge impact if that is is causing problems in the environment. And I don't think we ever really consider the environment in terms of what's inside the bottle. We think about the bottle, and actually, that's only one small part of our cosmetic product. The vast majority of our cosmetic product is what's inside the bottle, what's happening to that. There is a trend to go towards waterless products. You know, you're seeing things like shampoo bars, you're seeing Batiste, the waterless shampoo, etc. But uh, from what we've seen in the food industry, there's been a lot of work done towards the measure of the carbon footprint of products and the same things happening in the beauty industry. But when it comes to the water footprint, it is so much more complex. And I'll give an example. The oats that are grown in a field in Finland will have a totally different water footprint from the oats grown here in the UK than that in the Germany. And that's for a single ingredient. So when you try to work out the water footprint of a cosmetic product with multiple ingredients, it's very complicated. And that's why companies like L'Oreal, Unilever, Estee Lauder, etc., who's ever doing sustainability metrics, they shy away from the water impact. So yes, there is a move towards using less water, but to measure that and measure the impact, it is so complicated. And that's going to be the challenge. How do you communicate that to consumers? The second issue about which Richard talked about in terms of the environmental impact, we've seen a lot of strides in the last 20 years in terms of formulations of products. The big shift is moving towards green formulations. And we've seen, you know, green surfactants, we've seen paraben-free preservatives. We've seen so many different natural ingredients being used as opposed to synthetic chemicals. We've seen things like phthalates being removed. We've seen things like plastic microbeads coming out of cosmetic formulations. So I think the environmental impact and the health impact of the product is far better today than what it was 20 years ago. But the big issue, again, I would like to say is plastics. This is what we're seeing where the industry is looking at. And the natural organic brands, they've always been at the forefront to make sure that their products are cleaner, safer, better for the environment. They were the first to move away from animal testing and they're all looking at their packaging impact. So what we see next year, more so than say waterless, more so than the environment and other issues, is how can brands reduce their packaging impact? Because so much strides have been made in the formulations in the last 20 years, but the packaging is the next big thing. I think you've got to be really careful there with that assumption that natural Mm. equals safe. Mm. I think it's an assumption that many people make um, and it's scientifically incorrect. There's plenty of things in the natural kingdom. In fact, most plant life (laughs) has evolved over millions of years to be toxic to humans. There's actually a very small percentage of the animal kingdom that we can actually eat safely. And again, it's all about dose in relation to toxicity. Our brand, Dr. Craft, is very much largely based on natural products, but we understand the fundamental chemistry of every single thing inside there because of that reason that nature does make some really concerning chemistry. And so if you take some natural extract from 
goodness knows whatever and stick it in a cosmetic product and assume it's safe just because it comes from nature, well, that's potentially really, really dangerous. And also assuming that when you put it into the environment, it's going to have no impact because it's from nature. Again, it, it isn't true. Mm. So being very, very careful about your ingredients and understanding what they all do is is very important. And you're quite right about that there has been a huge development in things like green surfactants derived from natural products, and that's great. But if you go into the high street and look at your average shelf of shower gels, for example, the vast majority of them still have the same old petrochemical-derived surfactants. Mm. And, and that's often due to consumer reasons such as the naturally derived surfactants don't form as much. And I think it's um, it's something we look at very closely at the body shop and obviously we we try and, and we have a, a long way to go, but we, um, we try to really consider every level. What are the questions that you have to offset? Because you do, you know, let's take the example of uh, synthetic versus natural fragrances. So everyone loves the idea of natural fragrances, but if you're using a natural cedar fragrance, you're cutting down a tree to get that natural fragrance. So what is the impact of that? And maybe using a digital facsimile of, of that scent and creating a synthetic version of it has a much better environmental impact. Vegan is another thing that's very challenging. You know, that gets thrown around as interchangeable with good for the world, good for the planet, cruelty-free. And if you read some of the ingredients lists of vegan brands, they are full of petrochemicals because they're avoiding beeswax by replacing it with petrochemical waxes. So we really need to consider the impacts on animals, the impact on plants, the impact on people. Uh, again, it's it's a hugely complex question. And, and going back to my point in the beginning about shop staff there is there's online to research but we're also seeing a huge amount of people coming into our stores expecting our um, amazing store colleagues to have a huge level of information in their hands so it's almost easier for some online brands where they can easily display all of that information you again we have over 3,000 stores worldwide we employ over 20,000 people who very rapidly are having to come up to speed with a lot of this information um, because it is complex so I think you're absolutely right we cannot equate natural with good for the planet, the environment, it's it's a very complicated question, unfortunately. Well, let's talk about the uh, most complicated of, of the questions that's um, there at the moment, which is definitely palm oil. I mean, we've all, <laughs> we've all seen the Greenpeace slash Iceland advert. Yeah. How is this going to develop next year? Is, is it going to be the year of the palm oil backlash, do we think? I think there's already a high awareness of palm oil. It's dangerous to say all palm oil is bad. So we make sure that all of, at the body shop, all of our uh, palm oil is responsibly sourced. There is the round table for sustainably sourced palm oil. There is a state in Malaysia, the state of Sabah, which has guaranteed that all of its palm oil will be sustainably produced. And as a result of doing that, they're having a huge impact on uh, greenhouse gases. So the question is not palm oil good or bad, but palm oil, where is it from? And is it responsibly sourced, I think? Um, and I would hope, and I think I applaud Iceland for, for what they did or tried to do, um, and raising awareness of the issue. I think we have to be, again, careful not to paint it as a black and white issue because there is really great work being done to make palm oil more ethical. 
uh, I'm going to give an answer about palm oil, but uh, uh, just to come back to the point, natural does not always mean safe. It does not always mean better for the environment. But the point is, as a brand and as a formulator, you have a lot more options available in terms of raw materials than you had 10, 20 years ago. So there's a lot more choices in terms of preservatives, surfactants, in terms of ingredients. And it's not black and white. And the same point is about palm oil. When Iceland and other companies make a big pledge that they're going to move away from palm oil, it can actually have a more of a negative impact on the environment because palm oil is the most efficient vegetable oil that you can use. If you go to coconut oil, gestation period for a coconut tree, typically minimum two years, the amount of acreage that you need is a lot higher. And that's the same, same thing for rapeseed oil, canola oil, all the other vegetable oils. So if there was a shift away from palm oil to other oils, it would actually have a more of a negative impact yeah. because you need a lot more land and you, you may be putting people out of their jobs, livelihoods, etc. So I think we should never paint a picture that is black and white. I, I'm all for sustainable palm oil, but I think the industry needs to do a lot more. More than half of all the palm oil which is produced, more than half of the sustainable palm oil which is being produced is still going into the conventional market. So demand is lagging supply. And this is a big issue for the industry. So it would be nice to have more companies make a pledge for sustainable palm oil. I think it all ultimately relates back to the fact that base ingredients like oils are very, very cheap. And I don't think brands are prepared to pay a fair price to get them sustainably. And and, and often, more importantly, to get them at a price that's beneficial to the place where they're coming from. You know, if you, you talk about things like, you know, your example of Sabah in, in Malaysia, that can potentially have a huge benefit to that mm. country and that community in terms of having something that they can produce as a crop. And if they're doing it responsibly and sustainably, that can, can hugely enhance the quality of their life. And to kind of take that away by saying, oh, palm oil is bad is, is, is a really dangerous thing. That only works if they're getting a fair price for that. Mm. And I think in all of our concern about the environment and the planet and animals, what's often overlooked is people. Mm. And I don't really know of many other species in the animal kingdom who think more about other species than their own. And I think humans are guilty of that sometimes. I really do, that we, we're quick to jump and, and throw our arms in the air if, if marine life is in danger. But what about human life? Yes, but we all share this planet and we've all got to take responsibility for that. Without the planet, there's no people. What I absolutely love, is, and going back to, to my original point, we're having these discussions. I've been working in, in branding in, in the industry for health and beauty for over 20 years. I don't think I've experienced these rich discussions before in almost in one year. 2018, we've had diversity. We've been addressing really game-changing political issues. We've been thinking and questioning every single point of our existence and our impact, our consumerism. And let's bring it on. Let's mm. continue these discussions. And I think it's fantastic that Iceland had put the, that commercial out. And I think it's probably even better that it was banned because that's given them even mm. greater voice. Yeah. We're having those discussions Brands are having those discussions, and this is the year for the change. You know, this is a whole big disruptive year. It's been bubbling away for quite some time. We're having those discussions. Consumers want those answers, and consumers are looking to brands for those answers. 
it's really interesting that Ellen was saying that the in-store, they're having the at the till, they're asking about the brands, they're mm-hmm. showing signs that the things that you buy, now you're being responsible for it. So the impact, how am I affecting the world? How am I affecting the planet? Mm. And I think you're absolutely right about um, the the people impact. So at the body shop, I think most people know, we, we have a really strong community trade program that we have had for a long time. And the palm oil and, and lots of things around the meat industry as well, which is less relevant to health and beauty. But I think a lot of the fear around it comes from industrial levels of farming and not working mm. with the environment, either with crops or mm. or animals. And that's something that, that we tried to do. So last year I was in Kenya to visit our tea tree program and we work with small holdings and so lots of individual farmers growing the tea tree crop and they have been replacing tobacco and some other things that they've been growing that are very bad for that um, environment and we were visiting them with our community trade auditors and checking that how much tea tree are they growing versus vegetables to feed themselves, for instance? And, you know, how do you find that right balance between somebody producing something for commerce, but also for their own survival? So I think we talk a lot with our customers about that in stores because I think people are interested and increasingly interested and need to be educated on the people behind all of these products. And, you know, we're very proud to have been doing it for, for 25 years and you can make a real impact. We've just started a program in Rwanda with our Moringa oil. And that's a country that has had, you know, genocide, huge civil war, huge issues. And by empowering, and by the way, it's largely with women running those communities and, and you give the money and you educate women and it has a really big impact. And by empowering those women and giving them an income and giving them a sense of purpose and a sense of pride in what they're doing, you can have a really big impact both with the environment because you're working with it and on those people's lives. I think resource, resource efficiency is also really important and when i talk about resource efficiency if we're growing crops we should should we necessarily be dedicating land to growing crops for cosmetics when there are so many other opportunities for example in my own brand dr craft we we look to food waste so what's left over from food production so i'm not suggesting taking food away from people's mouths but once it's been used for its primary purpose for for humans What's left over? What byproducts? What waste is available there? Because that's a potentially very, very rich source of chemistry for use in cosmetics and food additives and, and all sorts of different areas. Sort of to sum up, it's been a really interesting year in mm. that we've had so many issues crop up. I think for me, 2019 will be about helping consumers to sift through all these mm. issues, to clarify on a lot of points, and also to address the fundamental question, which is, are you prepared to pay more for better? Mm. Um, better mm-hmm. for everybody. And that that's fundamentally the issue, isn't it? Is Are, are you going to pay for it? And, and I think that, you know, that mass has been struggling a lot already. And ultimately, they're going to have to put a couple of pence on everything in order to do this. So it's going to be an interesting year in 2019. What do you think is going to be the key trend that we're going to be talking about all next year? I think the trend is going to continue. It's not just in the beauty industry. You see it in the food industry. You see it in other product, you know, the consumer product industries. Everyone's got mobile devices. Consumers are more informed than any other time in history. We're all asking greater questions about the products that we buy, how to use them, what we're eating. 
and the trend is going to continue. You know, it's it's no coincidence that consumers are asking more questions today. Everyone's got a mobile phone. Everyone is searching up on things. You've got mobile apps. You can go to the supermarket. You can scan a product and you can find out where it was made, how it was produced, what, how ethical the brand is, etc. So the trend is only going to continue. But the downside is there's going to be a lot of misinformation too. Consumers will make wrong choices because of things that they read on social media. And there's going to be a lot of brands which are going to be penalized or being called to account, rightly or wrongly. So that's the downside of it, that there's a lot of misinformation as well as a result of that. Nick? I think it's going to be the year of transparency. I think that all these things that we've been talking about, consumers are demanding answers, quite rightly. And they are going to be making the choices uh, on their brands, a lot more considered choices and the impact that they have and and what the brand's uh, story and beliefs are. I think consumers are showing a lot more interest rather than just on autopilot, putting those brands in the trolley and not thinking about it. It's going to be the year of thinking and it's going to be the year of questioning and brands really need to get their stories straight. I, I agree with that and both of those last two points. I think I think the trend has to be from, from the industry, it has to be the right answers. And when I say the right answers, I mean correct answers. Answers based on evidence, not selling products and i think that as you, as you quite rightly say misinformation is a very very dangerous thing because it can get people onto trends which are potentially even more destructive than what they're trying to move away from you know th- there are examples of things like you, know, you mentioned the vegan branding before when you know any petrochemical is vegan there's the whole issue of cruelty free and and not testing our animals when Every single cosmetic product in this country is not tested on animals because it's the law. Mm-hmm. So having labels on a product that says not tested on animals actually is misleading because you're kind of suggesting that somebody else does test on animals, which is actually untrue. It's come a long way since Anita Roddick's days when, mm-hmm. when Body Shop were pioneers in that area, quite rightly so. And you can be very proud of that as Body Shop, that that's what, where we, it's led to. But now that's everybody. You know, so I, I think that we have to make sure that the answers that we give are correct, scientifically backed, hopefully, and that when you say transparency, it genuinely is transparent and not just some more marketing information. Absolutely. And I think, I think what we've covered today, and I'm feeling slightly overwhelmed by it, is just the <laughs> complexity of, of what's going on. So you're right that that everyone's got a mobile phone and can look up the information, but gosh, I'm in the industry and even I feel a bit overwhelmed by it. I think that there is a huge opportunity to be grasped by brands. Um, You know, we talked at the beginning about sort of the death of brands over the last 10 years and the rise of democratisation of information, but I think there is a vacuum for brands that customers really trust and believe in to help them navigate this really complex environment. And, you know, we at The Body Shop have been around for over 40 years now, tackling some of these issues, not always getting them right because they're complex. But we have built a lot of trust with our customers. We have a a long way to to go. But for us, it's about reasserting our purpose of why we're here and using that trust and awareness to help customers navigate. And coming back to our first point about what's going to happen with retail, I think shops have a really important 
role to play in this, particularly our people in shops to help navigate. Because it's all very well to say I can scan it. Oh my gosh, but it's the information. What do I need? Oh my gosh. Um, so how do shops and the wonderful people within them help customers to navigate it and again that comes back to a huge upskilling people in shops it's a long way away from your Saturday girls who are who are stacking shelves so I think it's people who can hire the best talent and help connect with people and engage them so hopefully brands like the body shop and other brands who grasp that opportunity to to step into the vacuum and educate customers will do well. Thank you very much. And presumably you're hoping for a global ban on animal testing too? Yeah, because you're right that in this country it's banned, but there are still a lot of countries in the world. It's not just China. Canada, for instance, which you would assume is a a very progressive company, doesn't have a ban. So we gathered 8 million signatures this year. We've taken it to the UN to really try and talk about that. And it looks like we're quite close in Canada to be able to get that over the line. The legislation had been very stalled previously. And now, um, thanks to the work done by our amazing store teams, it looks quite close to being able to get over the line in Canada. But we would like to see it banned globally. And there are lots of... Again, it's a bit like vegan. There are lots of brands who may have one label or the other, but they are selling in China. So they may well have a, look, we're not animal testing over here, but we are over there. So I think it's about consistency. We work a lot with Cruelty Free International who do an amazing job and have a very stringent leaping bunny standard. Uh, But we would love to see that. And uh, very happy in Canada. There are really positive signs coming out of China, our brand. We have a lot of Chinese customers interested in the body shop who come over here and buy huge amounts of products because they want to buy cruelty-free products. So we would love to be able to see the legislation change in China. And so that, that, goes, we can that goes to government level, doesn't it? I mean, the, the, the problem is, you know, all Dr. Craft products, you know, no animal testing whatsoever. But in certain countries, we couldn't sell into it because it's not been tested on animals. And I think, so it has to happen at a global level. You know, major politicians have to make those decisions to help the industry and, and, mm. and to help that, that situation. Mm. Yeah. Well, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Fingers. <laughs> so I'd like to thank all our panellists for joining you. Thank you, Nick. Thank you, Amajit. Thank you, Richard. And thank you, Ellen. Goodbye. <laughs>